0: Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Hey, what's crack a This is CJ Gustafson back with another enthralling episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. Uh, I just got off the phone with Charlie Kevers, the CFO of Carta. Uh, you know, I... I look at myself as a, a fanboy of this company. It, I, I stuttered there because it feels weird to say out loud. It's like if software companies were boy bands, like Carta would be my like, backstreet, boys or in sync. I love this company because of the tools they make, just because I live inside of cap tables all day, and because they solve the problem for me. That's extremely relevant. So. Um, this was an interview that I had circled on the calendar. It's kind of like when you think about a football team, they're like, we're circling the Jets next week. I'm like, I'm circling Carta. And I got hyped up for this one. You can probably hear from the beginning, the excitement in my voice, also the heartburn in my chest. I had half a box of Eggo waffles before we went live and four coffees. We're going to get to that episode. Before we do, I want you to smash that like, subscribe, five-star button. I heard one of the founders of Turpentine actually last week. You know who you are. Hadn't hit the button yet. So looking for a little bit of support here. Help a brother out. Hit the five-star button. I love all your listeners. Thank you. All right, but before we get to the interview, I want to go off the books for a second because as we all know, it seems to be contract negotiation season. And so this is a story about my first time as You know, the person on the other side of the table actually negotiating these contracts. My first real negotiation as a CFO. At the end, I'm going to give you three takeaways, but I'll just tee it up for you. So, you know, you don't really build many negotiation skills in the FP&A world. I mean, you're, I guess, brokering budgets, but you're not really going head to head with someone that you actually have to pay. And I didn't really have that skill and I didn't really want it either. Unfortunately, I've come around to now, you know, work on it reluctantly, but like I will put my wife up against a used car dealer before I actually talk to them and haggle over price. Like it just makes me very uncomfortable asking for discounts and stuff. I don't know why. And so my first negotiation uh, as a CFO was against uh, a small company in San Francisco called Salesforce. When I went into the negotiation, you know, I didn't have much, much ammunition to go off of. One, I didn't have the skills. And then two, Uh, I was, I was declining to renew Tableau, which I didn't even know they owned. The second thing that I I had to do was tell them that we didn't want marketing cloud, which they had auto renewed the year before and we had paid for, but not used. And the third thing, and this is where they really got me is like, I tried to push back and be like all slick. And this is where like, I feel, I feel like I had imposter syndrome and it actually backfired on me. Like I tried to act like I knew more than I, I did. It, it was like a vulnerable moment where I actually got punched in the face. And what happened was I remember I told the rep, I was like, yeah, but I don't really think we need like that. And he's like, eh, I don't know. I think you do, man. And he shares his screen. I remember. And it's like, you are 450% over in storage that we haven't charged you for. And we're going to be nice and not charge you for it. And also, um, you're like, you're like 65 days behind in paying us for the last quarter. And like I'm sitting there like, yeah, I know, but isn't there anything we can do about this? And um, yeah, I got, I, I got my teeth kicked in. And so I took some things away from that. And the first thing is like, know where the power lies in negotiation. Like I knew that with Salesforce, I wasn't going to like scare them into thinking I was going to go use spreadsheets or like HubSpot tomorrow. The second thing was like they knew I owed them money, unfortunately. Um, But there are some levers that I've worked on since then. So the first thing is making the sales reps' life easier. And I actually got this from my brother who's who's in sales. And, you know, it's to ask them, what could I do to make your life easier? When do you want me to sign by? And they'll be transparent with you. I mean, we're all people and we all have like goals. These guys have quotas like at the end of the month. And if you say, can you give me an extra 5% off if I if I've promised you I'll sign by tomorrow, usually you can get that. The second thing you can do is you have asymmetrical information on how your company will grow over time. And so like, unfortunately at that time, I hadn't made an annual operating plan yet for the next year. Like I literally just walked through the door and, but now I know how many heads are gonna be in my operating plan for next year. And I can buy a head of that growth to get a better discount. And, and the third thing I would say is study the payment terms. That's something that's also bit me in the ass before. Um, If you're coming off of a round where you just raised money and you have some cash in the bank, do yourself a favor and use that to your advantage, offer to prepay upfront. Um, You know, now you're probably getting a little bit of interest on it in the bank, you weren't before, but that's a tactic that I find works well. Like quarterly billing is great when you don't have a lot of money, to spend but if you can annual pay for it and also use that as a lever oh and finally i found out this cool thing where you can like let them use your logo and they can say hey th- these cool dudes over here are customer you should be too apparently you get a discount for that so all these different levers things i didn't know then that i know now um you know i wouldn't say i'm like the the chris voss fbi negotiator never split the difference author yet but I am working on it. And now it's like I got, I, I got the fever, I've been bitten. I feel like I can negotiate for anything. I'll just go in and like try to negotiate for my daughter's childcare. I'll be like daycare, 2,000 bucks a month. I was 1500 sound. <laughs> She's a good kid, right? She's an act up. I'll negotiate for anything. And in fact, this weekend, this is where the plot thickens. I will go head to head with a used car salesman. Yes, my wife is going to be the lucky owner of either a luxury Toyota Highlander post 2021 or a Ford Edge. So Gustafson family, stepping it up. I'll update you next week on this whole car saga. I hope my family will be the proud owner of one mid-tier sub luxury SUV. It's got the seats in the back. So like we can throw my dog Walter back there. It's even got like an an iPhone plug for for him to charge his phone. So we're pretty pumped about that. Um, I'll catch you next week on the Run the Numbers podcast. All right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here with the CFO of Carta, Charlie Kevers. Charlie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I was telling producer Nancy right before this that I am extremely excited because I'm a Carta power user but I also just had half a box of Eggo waffles with syrup right before this meeting because I couldn't find anything else in my home to eat for lunch. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring the energy, but I'm really pumped to have you on.
1: That's good. And Eggo waffles with syrup, never, never a bad time to have that. So. I, I have I a little it. bit of
0: heartburn, so I'm, I'm managing that, <laughs> but uh, ex- <laughs> excited to have you here. Um, Charlie, I spend an inordinate amount of time in Carta, I have to admit. The scenario planning tool is amazing we started out with just the basic cap table stuff and when we found out mm-hmm. that was something that was an option um and we were fundraising at the time like we instantly upgraded like i couldn't you couldn't take my money fast enough it's so fascinating how to- how you were able to go from what many people may think like a single product company which is cap table management to this multi-product you know i'll, I'll say behemoth but like one of my fa- favorite finance tools in, in the past couple of years
1: well, always good to hear that it's it's helpful to to a finance professional like you, uh, and I'll I'll encourage you to look at the, um, the expense accounting tool, which I I personally like the best because that really saves a ton of time, and my team loves it.
0: And so, Charlie, how many years have you been at Cardano? now?
1: Uh, almost six and a half.
0: Six and a half. And when you started as CFO there, what would you say the number one thing was that kept you up at night?
1: It's not complicated. At that stage, it was cash. cash? Cash is, is the cash burn and cash was, was all I was thinking about. So I joined between Series B and Series C. And uh, actually, one of my first experiences with the CEO was to tell him that their planning was wrong and, and we were going to run out of cash a lot faster than he thought we would. And so we went to, to raise some cash a, a bit faster than was initially anticipated. And so cash was on my mind pretty much every day hey thanks for listening we'll be right back
0: after a word from our sponsors if you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business you know that as you scale your systems break down and the cracks start to show if this resonates with you there are three numbers you need to know thirty six thousand twenty five and one. Thirty-six thousand. that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to netsuite by oracle NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite’s popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/metrics. That's netsuite.com/metrics to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com/metrics. If you can just go back to that moment, how did you communicate it to him at the time? New CFO coming in, you you, you inherited this book, and you're probably going through the balance sheet. What would you say to him?
1: I just basically laid it out. Like, here's here's how I look at it. Here's here are all the expenses. Here's how much you pay people and and all the vendors that we have. And literally took him to the model and said, look, I I just did it for myself to understand how the business <laughs> was functioning in detail. And then, I mean, it, 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 it was very clear, right? It wasn't very complicated and looking at the hiring plan and these types of things. but with simple assumptions, you could tell, okay, we need more cash. And so he, he got it very quickly. I think the, the next week we were, were starting to put together a deck and, and and worked on fundraising.
0: We were talking to Michael Tannenbaum on the podcast, who's Brex CFO, and he made an analogy to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but with startups. And he said, you know, instead of food and water and then shelter, at the beginning, it's like cash, cash, cash. Then after that, it's hiring. And I thought that was a really apt analogy of the way he described that startups go through these phases of, of needing different things and different things keeping you up at night.
1: 100%. I can't agree more. Like, if you're not thinking, if, you, if you're in the early stage, you're not thinking about cash all the time as a finance person, you're not focused on the right thing. There's plenty of things operationally you need to be focused on as well. But in the end, your main job is to make sure the company doesn't run out, run out of money. So, pretty critical. You know, we touched on it at
0: first how you had to communicate a tough message to your CEO pretty early on in the job. I was doing some listening to podcasts you'd previously been on, and you'd called the CFO kind of a truth teller of sorts. Mm-hmm. How have you honed that skill of of telling the truth in, in a balanced manner over your career without being an alarmist, but also, you know, being the straight shooter?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is just it's really working on communications and 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 really being as transparent as you can. And your question is really apt in terms of you don't want to freak out anybody, but it's yeah. really just about laying it laying the facts as you see them. And you may be missing things, but at least in enabling the discussion with your peers, the CEO, the board and making sure that your job is is to actually make that picture as clear as possible. And Oftentimes, everybody doesn't have the ability to to connect what's happening operationally to what's happening financially. And your job is, that's to me, job number one is to help everybody make that connection. And so it just starts with that. And and really laying out, here's why I think, here's what's happening and and where I see an issue and things we want to work on. And so transparency and kind of ongoing engagement is really number one.
0: So I'm a first-time CFO. I'm going on my second year now. And I got to admit, something that I'm struggling with and looking for help on is... How often to talk to my investors and communicate with them? And I think one of my flaws personality wise is I, I can be a people pleaser when people ask things of me, like I'll, I'll jump pretty quickly. How have you managed how often, like the cadence of, of talking to investors and telling them about the business, what's going right or wrong?
1: Yeah, we we've actually iterated with that a lot ourselves as as a team and and, and myself. Uh, so in the early days, we were doing board meetings every two months, which frankly was was every a lot two months, so not quarterly. Every two months,
0: okay. we're doing
1: quarterly now. But when we started, it was it was a lot a lot more, which was helpful, but also meant a lot of work on on my team to kind of every every two months kind of get get ready for that. We're now on a cadence where we've got monthly touch points that are scheduled and quarterly board meetings that i've found to be like a really good mix in terms of our ability to update the board on things that are happening never surprise them and and, and that schedule kind of touch point makes it makes it easy to make sure most of them are on and then personally it's it's using the, those, those monthly touch points and then frankly any any time i have something to ask or an update to to get them or frankly something's not going as well as we plan i just pick up the phone and just call them. And so that's the main learning is just, just call them. What I always tell my team is that the bad news should travel way faster than the good news. Uh, because that's how you build trust. And that's how you build enough of, of that reputation that the truth will come, come out on the finance team. And so same thing with the investors. And that's hard in the early days because you're never sure like, what to say, what not to say. Yeah. But I found that many of them, they're all experienced investors. They've seen generally way worse things than whatever you're going to tell them. <laughs> is, is what I found out. And so they can take it. And, and generally it's better to have them in the loop. They can help you versus trying to do it all in the background. And, and sometimes it, it gets worse and then they get surprised. And that's generally your worst position um, that puts you in. It's kind of like it's never as good or as bad as it seems probably. A hundred percent. I've been in so many situations over my career where you know it it, it helps you understand everything's relative. And so when it's your first time in a job, it feels terrible. And then investors, I remember actually one session with one of our uh, series B investors who who did an offsite with my team. And I remember him starting the offsite, by saying, I know you all think the the wheels are coming off the bus, everything's broken, everything's on fire. It's like, that's normal. That means you're moving fast. That means the business is scaling. And everybody was like, yeah, how do you know? He's like, yep, that's totally normal. What you all think is just terrible, and you must be the only company faced with these challenges, everybody is. And it was funny how just that one line made the whole team just relax a lot more and understand Kind of put you at ease. And then it's just about picking what fires you put out uh, and and just getting comfortable that certain things will will, will get a little bit worse before you can get to them. But that's just the nature of the job in a fast-scaling company.
0: I heard this quote last week, and it was, every startup is a loosely functioning disaster. And... I think That's it's true line. to true to an extent. I mean any <laughs> company you think from the outside like wow, look at them, they're kicking ass, everything's up and to the right. And when you're in the moment, you're like, my goodness, this is a bumpier ride than than I expected. And I I wanted to ask like do you have any sort of framework of like how to know when it's time to pick up the phone and update somebody? Like how do you know this is a big enough issue to to update the board or even the CEO, I guess internally on?
1: Yeah my 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 framework is generally, and it's really influenced by my 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 days as a, an ir guy at a at a public company yeah it's when you set certain expectations and you know these expectations won't be met won't be met okay won't be, and it's just like the moment you know whatever it, it doesn't have to be a metric but just like we're going to make progress on this we're going to release this at this date and you know you're going to be off those, those those major milestones just pick up the phone and and do it as fast as you can even if it is to say Hey, I don't think we'll get there. I don't, I don't know yet when we will, but I'm working on it. That is better than just waiting to have the full answer. Readjust expectations as fast as you can.
0: And you were doing IR at HP. Do I have that right? Yeah. yeah. And that was a time where I think there were like three or four CEOs in a short period, right?
1: Four CEOs in two years. Yeah, So it was a really fun time. Can you think of any examples
0: of maybe a, a tough message you had to deliver?
1: A few first, like changing CFO as CEOs is never a good message to to investors. We also did a a disastrous acquisition. I remember this is the the only time in my career I got actually yelled at for basically for a day straight by investors. Basically, were telling me here's how much I've personally lost because of the thing that you did. The the stock was down thirty percent in one day. Um, In one day, from from uh, an acquisition, just absolutely crazily overpriced it was it was uh, a very challenging message to deliver and i had to sit in front of everybody and say no this is great it's going to make the company better right. all well, like no this is terrible and and so that was that was not easy and then relaying that back to the management team was also a fun thing to do to tell them by the way the decision you just made they could see the stock price of course but just add yeah. a lot of the the actual quotes from uh, our largest investors were not very happy at the
0: time. There were some explicatives or swear words <laughs> a, in there?
1: A, a lot of them. This was really my first experience to just like being the face of the company in those instances right. and really taking it and saying like, okay, thank you for your thoughts and, and moving on.
0: How did you feel in the moment? Did you take it to heart?
1: I mean, this is where I, now with with um, you know the retrospective this is where now I'm like nothing will ever be as bad as that day that I had, <laughs> no matter what, and and so, but yeah, at the time it's it, it's hard, like really trying to parse what they're trying to communicate, and a lot of it is just like what 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 I learned in those days is just uncertainty is the worst thing possible for investors, and so they just don't know, they don't understand enough, they don't have enough context to kind of get their heads around what does it mean for the business. And we've done, frankly, not a great job communicating that. And so to this day, I spend as much time as I can making sure that like, I remove as much uncertainty as I can. It's never completely possible in, in the world of startups, but I see my job as partly trying to remove, both internally and externally, but just how, do, how can I remove uncertainty and, and explain as much as I can in terms of what I see so that everybody's on the same playing field. It's never as good or as bad as it seems,
0: except for that day. It was as bad as it seems. <laughs> that
1: was. I'm I'm hoping this is the worst it gets uh, career wise.
0: <laughs> you always have that floor to, to build off of, and if you think about what makes a great CFO, what qualities or skills would you put on your list?
1: Yeah, it, it's probably obvious from everything I've uh, I've mentioned. Communication is pretty high up the list. It's basic by being able to model, understand all the financials that that stable stakes. But I yeah. think really what sets apart great CFOs, and it, it, in my experience, like I've learned from a lot of really, really good CFOs, and and they were tremendous communicators. Yeah. Uh, and I, And I'm I'm trying to just be as careful as I can on that front. And it's both just what you deliver, but also how you present information. And I found just like spending enough time on, um, again, both internally and externally. How you explain what's happening to the business, how you break it down, just really making it as simple as possible, so everybody can feel part of solving whatever problem you're trying to highlight, is really critical. And that comes back to: can you communicate, you know, in a written form, in presentation form, in verbal form, and and that's that's a really critical piece of it. And and we're all there's not a lot of training around this, right? Like in in the finance career, that is not like a, a critical piece of. No one taught me how to write
0: a good investor email. Like that was not in the handbook.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's generally where where you learn that on the job, and 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 where people really stand out is their ability to just communicate really effectively. And did investors, is the ability to to relate a strategy in very compelling ways. So to them, it translates to like, okay, I I understand what it means for for the business and its financial profile in the future. To get
0: tactical, do you send? Uh, a monthly email to investors that follows like a certain format? Is that how you usually get the message across? Like, Hey, here are the key metrics. Like I call it a flash report, like at the end of the period, do you discard to do one of those?
1: So I do a, a quarterly flash with all our key metrics on, on where we think the quarter and before we fully close the quarter. Um, just to give them a a quick sense of like, where are we on cash burn? Where are we on AR growth and and, and all the components that they are? And on on a monthly basis, more ad hoc. Like if we have specific things we're kind of working on, we'll give them a quick update on that. But metrics wise, unless things are off track, uh, it's more of a quarterly process at this point.
0: And um, the metrics that you talk to investors about, do you usually set those at the beginning of the year? And here's why I'm asking. I feel like sometimes coming into... A role finance people will almost try to blind investors and their bosses with science. They'll give them ten metrics to look at. Like, are you pretty specific and and thoughtful about? Hey, these are the ones I'm just going to tell you about every single period over and over again.
1: Yeah, one thing I learned. Oh, and I learned that from from my days at, at public companies is having a very consistent set of slides that you communicate or, or however you communicate to your board that you show them consistently every quarter. So we've mm-hmm. had the exact same views of our business adjusted for the new things we've done but generally following the same the same uh, structure for this point i think four years and now it's really easy because like they just this, they have the trending they know exactly what the slide means they know exactly what the information is showing them and so we can actually focus on what's happening what does this mean uh, oh this is not going as well as we thought what are we doing about it versus like what is this is this good is this bad and so like that consistency is really key and, and you know another piece to to make sure you're you aligned with our investors on. So in the, in the early days, I actually spent time with every single investor saying what's useful, what's not useful. Every new investor coming on board, spent time with them asking, yeah. here's what we're looking at. Does that, does that give you all the information you need to assess our performance? Uh, and over time, we got to a point where like in our most recent fundraising, they were like, yep, your board acts are great, gives us all the information, we don't need anything else. But that took a few years to really get to the right, the right structure.
0: So if I'm hearing you right, you essentially train them on the structure and look of what they're going to see each period. And that probably goes a long way, you know, in terms of creating it internally, you know, off the shelf what you have to create each period. And you're kind of training investors, I think, to a certain extent, because something that I have to always remind myself is that like, hey, CJ, you're repeating yourself over and over again, but that's okay, because they're probably involved in 10 other companies. And they're not just thinking about your company every single day
1: that's a discussion i have with my team all the time because when they write certain things in in board decks and and i just if you work at the company like oh yeah i know what this means but if you take a step back like you're an industry, you have no clue what you, what you just wrote on the slide because it's it's so detailed and and they haven't seen anything for three months and so being really thoughtful like again keeping it simple tying it back to whatever you said last time and so we always go what did we say in the last board deck what are we saying now? Just making sure we're really thoughtful about this. Just, just make it as simple as possible for them to ingest the information.
0: What's some of the tactical advice that you usually give your team? Is it more is
1: less? Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, one, every slide, one message, not 10. I personally, am not a big fan of like a ton of numbers and then and then no highlight made it. Yeah. There's no way to know what you should be looking at. So every, every one of our PNLs, we actually highlight a few things. We actually want them to pay attention to is it like a change in margin, a growth profile, something? But we rarely just show like, here is like, you know, a hundred numbers. and Yeah, you the Jackson the one you Pollock like.
0: slide, it's just paint <laughs> on a page.
1: Yeah, I'm a big believer in just make it easy. And, and, and I personally believe in like make it visual. So, I mean, of course, you can't avoid having detailed, detailed numbers uh, on slides, but graphs tend to be ingested better. And so we spend a lot of time on like, what are the right views for, for what's going on with the business?
0: That makes a lot of sense. I've also worked with people who have very specific preferences. like I worked with one guy who was so anti uh pie chart like you get visibly upset if you ever put a pie chart in one of his presentations. I, <laughs> I don't know if you have a, a a specific look and feel, but I remember when I first stepped into my c f o role for the first time, I was talking to you know another mentor, and one of the things he said to me was, like, "Get your look and feel, which sounds like crazy, but like your package together for internal and external delivery, because people will know, oh, this came from CJ, I can trust this yep. information. And like, I kind of sat back and thought about that. Like, so you, you think like the colors and like the look of the charts and like the headlines, like, I mean, that's just window dressing. It's like, no, that's your brand that people know this originated from you and they can trust it.
1: I agree. I mean, I, I am quite biased given I, I grew up as a consultant and an investment banker in the early parts yeah. of my career. That That gets pounded into you that it's just it has to look the same whatever comes out of the company or the bank or a you know, consulting firm or the bank this is our brand this is how we make things look uh, and so same thing I, i'm i'm quite annoying with my team on just like we we use consistent ways to to show information here's how we label charts but once you get it in in a way that that works that way like yeah everybody knows oh this comes from from the finance team like i i know how to look at it i know what the information means it's, it's, it's much easier to get straight to the main topic you're trying to get to versus spending half your time explaining your charts.
0: I'm a recovering consultant as well. And people on, on like listening to this who weren't, they're probably like, these guys are nerding out on font sizes. But <laughs> I remember a specific experience my second year in, and I had given my manager, Dasha, a chart that had differentiated green in it. And she said like, CJ, go and correct this. And I think I like said to her, like it's green. Like what's the difference? And she said, this is the only effing thing we sell. We don't have widgets. We don't produce anything else. We produce this content. And if I can't trust you with this, I can't trust you with anything else. And I was like, whoa, okay, I get it. This is what we're actually selling this quality. And that kind of blew my mind at the time. So to transition a bit, I wanted to talk about working with a CEO. And so you've been at Cardus since it was smaller size. Now it's, you know, a brand name company, I'd say household brand, but not every household like mine talks about finance tools around the <laughs> dinner table. So, but when you look back about your relationship with your CEO, when you started, what's it like now with Henry? How has it evolved over time? Did you have that trust right off the bat? Like how, how has the dynamic changed?
1: It's, I mean, obviously over six and a half years and a lot of, a, a lot of ups and downs, it changed a lot. Um, because now we know how to work with one another, we don't have to to talk a whole lot. Like when he says like I want to do this," I understand what he means and can quickly translate that into operationally what it means. Mm. And same thing when I when I bring something to him, he's like, "Okay, I see where you're coming from. I understand." That wasn't the case in the early days. <laughs> I had to spend a lot of time explaining my perspective and, and and breaking things down in different ways to kind of get alignment on how I thought the financials should evolve and should reflect what we we're doing in the business. And similarly, he just, you know, he's a founder, product-led founder. And so yeah. structure process was initially something that he liked to talk about. And, and growth was the biggest focus. And talking about gross margin, he was like, why do I need to care about gross margin? No, he knows. That's, that's changed dramatically. Uh, but it was a lot of it was, was me aligning with him on what we were going to look at, what, what metrics really mattered. And, and, and that, that took a little bit of time for us to really align on these things.
0: Can we go to the gross margin thing? So was that something maybe you challenged him on once, or maybe had to bring him to the light of why it was important?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I I did it with him, and then I remember him saying, "You should explain this to everybody." And and as a final, like how do how do people not understand gross margin? But it's it was actually very very powerful to do for the whole company and explaining yeah. here's why. I'm going to be annoying with all of you on unit economics and why that translates into gross margin, because that's what enables you to invest in growth and invest in R and D. And, and that's what feeds the, the business in longer term can make us a profitable company. Cause if you, if you're at 30% gross margin, it's very difficult to be profitable if you want to continue to invest in growth and, and innovation. And just, that was actually also a great learning point for me is don't ever be afraid to do it for, for, the majority of the company if not the whole company because it's even if they know it it's a good reminder and it aligns everybody on like oh no i understand why why he talks about this all the time versus people are gonna nod and say yeah okay i've heard gross margin is important but don't really know why and so he's been really good at pushing me to say go explain like why do you care about cash like that's obvious, but like, why do you care about specific metrics around cash or collections or whatever it may be at different stages of the business? Yeah. Go explain to people why this matters. And so that's, that's been a, a great learning. And collaborating with him around that has been great because it also is important for him to, to be behind it. Cause I can say something. And if he's like, yeah, that doesn't really matter. The yeah. rest of The company won't, won't, won't care, obviously. So in the early days, it was really like learning from each other. And I think what, what helped me is, not coming too hard on like but this is what everybody else does like this is how we should look at this right really understanding how he was thinking about the business how he was thinking about growth versus investments and and not say this is what all the most successful public companies do what's the best way to walk that line because i'm i'm such a
0: benchmarking dork that like i always am like well here's a benchmark on why we should do it but i think sometimes it falls flat or it feels like i'm over clubbing like the situation just with numbers how do you balance that when you talk to your ceo
1: i think it starts with like making sure that you're aligned on like what are you solving for right, right. Like it, it, what are we trying to solve in the specific product area the specific market uh, now and, and and then using that answer to, to say okay here are how some other companies do it but for us i think this is the right answer at this stage of growth because the challenge with comps it's really I mean, i'm with you especially as an ex-banker you can't help but think through what does every other SaaS company do? What do other fintech companies do? And, and and really trying to bring it back to that. And we use that in our planning processes, of course. But with them, it was really good to just say, here's why these few really specific examples are relevant to us. And we don't have to do the exact same thing, but I think it, you know, here's how it informs how we think about it. And then, you know, look at it through just the, the right metrics for for the maturity stage. So for example, doing percentage of how much RD you spend uh, as a percentage of revenue in the early stages doesn't really help that much. To me, it was more like, how much growth do we want to add? How much are we investing to get that growth? So, so more of kind of the, these cash burn ratios or, or, or those types of things. And now we're at a stage where we can talk about rule of 40 and other things that are more, more typical for, for scale businesses. But I think the, the danger is to take metrics that are relevant for large businesses and apply them to a startup too quickly.
0: Have you seen that go wrong in your career? Oh,
1: a hundred percent. I mean, I I did it in the early days, and then and, you know probably shouldn't have pushed as hard on certain metrics. Like you know, look, we spend X amount of dollars of our X percent of our revenue in sales and marketing. Like that's too high. And the reality, is like this was the right thing to do at that at that stage for for that business because it was just so early, and, and and capturing the market was the right thing to do. Um and so I I think as this is where you can be dis- disconnected from what the, the business actually needs to do and where it is in its its maturity cycle. And so it, it informs the analysis. I think it, it, i always warn people to not be too tied to to kind of public comps, especially when you're like a 10 million dollar business.
0: Yeah. What's your framework for making decisions? And I maybe to add some context to this question. So CFO is like one of the main jobs is to be, you know, a steward of capital, and make you know, good investment and capital allocation decisions, a lot of things come across your desk. How do you decide when to pull the trigger on your own versus when to ask Henry what what his thoughts are?
1: So it's interesting for us, and it's been true from from the early days, is that we actually have a discussion as part of, you know, every, every year when we said kind of, what are the objectives for the year? And, and, and that's evolved quite a bit, but it was always a, a similar process. We're like, okay, what are we trying to solve this year? And and from the beginning of the year, we actually made a decision on how much do we want to invest behind every bet we're making. So that made decisions a lot easier because as long as it fit within the investment envelope, like a dollar budget envelope, you're saying? We would actually tie for each. So we, we managed the business from the early days in, in effectively business units a little more complex than but think of it in in a few different business units and for each business unit we give them a target of like here's how much growth we want to drive from this business unit and here's how many dollars we're willing to put behind driving that growth and what was important is tying the growth to the investment meaning if you don't get the growth that we're expecting of you you're not going to get the the full investment we're going to pull back as the year progresses that removed a lot of the everything having to come to me or Henry or, or the executive team to make decisions because the, many of the teams knew within their envelope, as long as if they were able to, to, to grow faster, we would be willing to put more money behind them. And that, that was kind of an, an accepted alignment. So we we're able to move a bit faster. Uh, where we spend most of our time was like, oh, do we want to move investment between bets, between business units, if you will, and kind of those trade-offs. Uh, and that generally just came from like how much progress are we seeing against our specific milestones, and that's where we spend most of our time. But within a specific product area, we just let the teams move as fast as they could.
0: So you essentially set up triggers or thresholds as like go or no go. That's right. That takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. I, I like that tactic.
1: The analogy in how we've done this for for a while now is look at every part of our business as as a startup. Meaning this is the seed. This is the seed business, this is the A business. this is the C so the c wow, like is this. much more yeah. scaled it's uh this is the type of of gross margin we should see profitability we should see but the seed is all about when you get product market fit, what are you gonna do to get there and It's like what are the milestones you' going you're gonna hit and just really and given we are we serve the startup world like that that really resonates with all our employees and so really using that as as a way to kind of align on what what this what specific products you're working on, where it is in its development stage uh, has been really helpful.
0: I like how you think about it as incubating different engines for growth, it sounds like, and almost making investment decisions as if you were like having a portfolio of products that you're funding. Because just to go back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, you have to have the right metrics to benchmark against the right stages and I don't know. I never thought about it that way. Why wouldn't you want to do the same thing for your own product lines in the company?
1: And that's what we continue to do to this day. Like, uh, and, and now we've learned like what are, the, what are the metrics we really need to pay attention to? What's the right level of investment? Because in the early days, it's a lot of trial and error. Like, it's really difficult to, to, to really figure out exactly how much you should invest. Now we've got enough, we, we've got years of experience in, in launching new things. And frankly, some have worked. And they were great, some have not, and we've had to kill them. And so it's also kind of that, that whole life cycle. How do you work through that and how, how quickly can you get to uh, an answer?
0: And so the ones that you do have to kill off, and you are not have to say product names or anything, but like, it's, it's hard to, you know, kill your babies if you put your heart yeah. into one of the product. How do you deliver that
1: message? A lot of it is actually, again, with transparency. Like, here's what, here's what we're seeing. Do you see something different, right? Like, here are the milestones that we had. We hit half of them. Like that doesn't, that doesn't scream product market fit. Like are there things that we've, we've missed? And, and one simple framework we use, and even today, I had a discussion about this just yesterday with, with many of our, of our execs. Think of it as a matrix, is it a good idea or bad idea? And good execution, bad execution, as a way to kind of break down why something is working versus not working. So for example, if one of your bets is not working, is it because it was just a bad idea? Like we thought this would be a great uh, product for our customers. Turns out we were wrong, that, that's happened. Or we still think, and we can support that it's a good idea because the feedback we're getting is good or, or, or we yeah. have enough metrics in terms of usage that there is something, but we screwed up the execution. That that happens too. And then, and then why that's important is then that, that helps you understand what do you what do you need to solve? If it's execution, that's solvable. If it's a bad idea, that's a lot more complicated and just generally bad idea means you're probably not going to continue to fund that. I
0: love this framework because it's kind of like, what can I control and what can I not control?
1: That's right. And it's still, it's still hard to tell people like, oh, we screwed up execution, which means like, you know, you need to quite deliver, so that, that's never an easy message. But but it, it helps uh, trying to have like a consistent framework across all these all these product areas.
0: And when you deliver those messages, I heard you ask a question, it was, are you seeing something that I'm not seeing? Do you find it best to actually ask questions rather than make statements in those scenarios?
1: Yes, uh, that's another thing I've learned from, from our CEO, Henry. He, before going into, here's what I think, he'll ask a lot of questions. He's very curious and accepts that I may, I may not be seeing everything. How about everybody else tell me, what are you seeing? What may I be missing in the picture, in the data? But on the flip side, once, once he feels like he's got a good picture, he's not afraid to make decisions and tell everybody is what I'm thinking. But he's really good at starting with listening and, and asking questions. I need to get better
0: at asking questions because a lot of times I'll come at things from like a fact-based pattern. And what I'm realizing is if I use questions to get there, it delivers a certain level of empathy 100%. And it helps people come to their own conclusion of why I'm maybe seeing it that way.
1: That's exactly
0: right. We talked about, you know, funding products kind of almost as a VC portfolio. And one of your products that I'm super fascinated by is Carta X for, for the secondary market. Maybe if you could give some context on the product and hit on maybe a couple points on why you, you saw the need for that in the first place.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so so what it is 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 broadly think of it as a as a liquidity solutions for 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 our customers. And in by customers, I I really include all the stakeholders that we serve. So think the companies and, and you have a lot of customers. Team. We do. So <laughs> <laughs> the good thing what was interesting. This was part of Henry's vision from day one. Uh, but only became possible once we had enough of, of of the the stakeholders in the private markets together on our platform, meaning employees, Using Carta accounts, the companies managing the capables to Carta, and investors also having access to their portfolios through Carta. So just hiding everybody on one platform was really step number one to even be able to start working on this. Uh, and what it is is just just providing the infrastructure end-to-end to kind of structure, either tender offers or block trades, and going all the way to settlement. That's really kind of everything we built. And, and think of it as the infrastructure that happens in the public markets. none of that exists private markets how do we use the existing infrastructure we have all the way to to moving money and shares around to to settle to to help the private markets to operate better there now and, and, and the the need to solve this was by just observing that it was a very opaque market pricings are all, all over the place there isn't efficient in any efficient ways to do this meaning People spend a ton of time first to get a deal done, and then I'm always impressed from it takes them months to settle a transaction. It's yeah, literally crazy in the world. Yeah, and that's like in any you know any CFO at this point of being through a tender or any other transaction knows how painful it is first to to do and thankless
0: people always complain around how long things take yes people get squirrely at the last moments like it's <laughs> it's really not fun to be on the finance team during a secondary transaction
1: it's not you're right there's a lot of like well this should be easy but it isn't and so it, so it was really that 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 realization that this gotta be an easier way for us to enable this Oh, uh, and so that that's how we started working on this and, and at this point we can run pretty much any type of transaction. We even ran an auction on our own stock a couple wow. years back to try what, what that looks like. And so we have all that infrastructure, uh, but really it comes, it comes down to just the basics of like, there is zero infrastructure to enable this. There should be. We think liquidity is, is, is an important tool in the private markets. We think it's here to stay. Uh, after the, the last few years, everybody, like many companies have used liquidity as a, as a way to, to attract and retain talent. The challenge with that for the, for those companies is once you do it, it's tough to never do it again because yes. everybody understands what it means. And 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 then broadly, like, you know, we think and we see it from many of our customers. That's now become part of how they think about you know compensation broadly and, and and retaining employees is being able to provide liquidity at certain intervals. You know, would would have happened like every every quarter? We're probably far away from that, but. Regular liquidity, I think, is is going to be on, on on everybody's mind uh, as we continue
0: to grow. Let's dig into that as an employee. So traditionally, you can't sell your shares in private companies. If now you can, there are more opportunities. How does that impact how employees and/or companies, I guess, should think about total comp?
1: I think, um, and, and we're seeing this is like employees now take that into consideration when what they what choose companies, right? Like say the prospects of both, both private companies are similar. Like you believe in in in. What they're working on and mm-hmm. in and the future growth of each business there's a there's a clear difference between the company that will give you some opportunity for liquidity say every every one or two years versus the company that says you know what no liquidity until we get acquired or, or there's an IPL. and especially in an environment where you know a good number of companies are providing liquidity and after the 2020-2022 period a lot of companies provide a liquidity. So that's just now an accepted fact that this is possible. And, and many employees were now asked, like, what everybody else is doing. Why can't we get some liquidity? But it's tricky, right? You also don't want people to sell like you know, 80% of their stock and now they have no incentive to continue to push and, and, and make the business really, really successful.
0: And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, what, I'm a CFO running my first secondary tender. What, what guardrails, if you could pick maybe Two or three? Would you encourage them to set up?
1: There's so many of them. There's such a. You can go over
0: two or three. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, because and I say this because that we spent I personally spent time with many of our customers saying, "Hey, here's what we've done." Like, not saying this is like yeah. best practice, but we've we've done over over my tenure, we've done six liquidity events, which is probably on the high end compared to to other companies, and so we've and we've gone through many different iterations, many many, many different structures, and so. It's from a guardrail standpoint, of like participation, it's really being thoughtful on, well, how do I make sure my employees continue to be incentivized? And so for us, we've set thresholds on how much of your vested shares can, can you sell? We actually make it different if you're on the executive team, meaning it's a lot lower than if you're an employee. Uh, same thing with investors. We've allowed our investors to sell as well. Same thing. Like, How, how do we constrain their ability to sell? We don't want them to sell their, their whole stake because that would likely... You know, disrupt the ability for, for employees to have access. So really thinking for for one transaction, but also having a strategy on how do you think about liquidity broadly, it enables you to make decisions on, on what you're going to allow people to do in, in your first one or or, or the first couple. Uh, so that's one. And that also impacts the structure of your transaction, meaning, well, who are the sellers? Is it just employees, ex-employees, investors, or the buyers? Because all of this, and this is where we see people kind of uh, struggling to to understand what the implications are. It has implications on your 49A, it has implications now on your stock-based cost, uh, has implications on tax treatment. and all these things is where it actually the rubber hits the road. And of course, you can never optimize for everything. So, for example, if you want like the best tax treatment, you may not get the best 49A impact. And just like and really working through all these components with, with folks who've done this many times, it's quite critical, especially if, if it's your first one, you know, CFOs who've never done it to really make sure they get, they get a ton of advice on, on how to structure it properly.
0: So if I'm playing it back, you should constrain, do you usually do by dollar or by percent that people can sell?
1: I've seen people do both. And we have also seen people go get really, really detailed on, based on tenure and everything. For us, it's, it's always been a percent of, of vested shares uh and and different different thresholds depending on on how senior you are in the business
0: so those are the two guardrails usually your level in the company and the percent
1: those are the main ones for us have you ever seen it go wrong in terms of allowing people to 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 have access to liquidity i mean invariably right like we we've had some of our early early employees who've done well right over over the years and, and yeah some of them like the challenge is you got to be okay with some of them now have enough to go start their own company so we yep. have many you know many companies in our space now are were started by ex-carta employees who thanks to liquidity were like this is great i've got a you know the risk is gone in terms of i i can i can try this for a year and i don't feel like i'm taking a huge risk because i've got some some money put aside That that's the risk but in in our in our mind, that's that's the right thing to do. And, and frankly, we we love just creating new founders. So that's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not a bad thing.
0: I'm a big boxing fan. And Marvin Hagler used to say, it's it's really hard to wake up in the morning and run those 10 miles when you're sleeping in silk pajamas.
1: <laughs> that's, it, and that's like, it's, it's it's such a hard balance, right? Really. So uh,
0: moving into what we like to call our long ass lightning round, I wanted to start off by asking you, could you give us an example of something you've ever messed up in your career on
1: the job? I think one of the one of the worst things is um, I learned the hard way is not firing somebody fast enough. And mm. why why I say this is because it's I don't think I appreciated the impact it had on the broader team by keeping somebody who was not performing clearly it wasn't performing who I liked personally and being like too. To attached to that and, and, and being willing to see that the performance was lacking and how it impacted everybody else, that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I've done in this job was to not take action fast enough. I'm a lot better at it now, but I had to learn the hard way.
0: It's funny you say that. We talked to Jenny Decker from Front, CFO at Front recently, and she said that I've made two bad decisions, uh, hiring the wrong person and not letting that person go fast enough. And she said those are actually two different mistakes can't agree
1: more i've made both of those as well <laughs> and so those are those are really critical ones to get better at i think
0: roll the theme music producer nancy and with that it's time to rep your stack sponsored by tropic the next gen procurement platform helping modern cfo's take control of their budgets and bottom line by combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit TropicApp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through what you're using for your finance tool stack today?
1: Oh, let's see. We're we're we love we love implementing software. Trying to automate as much as we can. We're a NetSuite shop. We love NetSuite here. Sponsor the podcast. NetSuite's a great, uh, great system. Uh, we use Zora for some of our uh, kind of subscription management and, and billing. We've been uh, a long-time Pigment customer. I know they're pretty new to to the U.S., but we, we've been using them for a while. I spoke to Julian uh, from
0: Pigment recently. He said to say hello. So he's happy, great, he's happy to have great. you as a customer.
1: We're big fans. Uh, Zip, uh, we're big fans from a procurement standpoint. Flowcast, uh, big, long-time users around kind of clo- close automation. These are all the, the big ones that come to mind, but we're, we're constantly looking at where can we, actually discussion I have with my team all the time is that like before you add a person, are you sure that there isn't a piece of software that can help us do this faster and better? What's the most recent tool you bought? I think the most recent is probably Pigment because we haven't changed a whole lot since then. And those guys are on a tear,
0: okay. Last question for you here. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense? <laughs>
1: the one I remember, I, I think I've got a, a few had a few really interesting dinners and things like this, but the the funniest one maybe <laughs> was we we have a benefit at Carta where we allow um people to expense books for their own use like so we we want to encourage yep. everybody to read, mostly business books, but generally we're we're pretty you know we're, we're pretty broad. but the first year, I remember distinctly somebody put in uh, an expense for like thirty books, and it was right around christmas time <laughs> and yeah. was, I still remember it was like. Dad, the harry potter series like four of them so clearly it was like christmas gifts people, <laughs> they were getting children's books were like hey this is just for you like we're, this is not meant for for you to kind of offer i a christmas voracious reader. <laughs> <laughs> clearly and and, and you won the same series like several times because you like it so much uh so yeah that was one of the funniest i remember <laughs> that's a good one i hadn't heard that one before cool
0: well charlie huge fan of Carta, huge fan of the career you've built, and I just want to really thank you for carving out time for us today.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you like the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.